Well, welcome everybody and welcome back to the series that we're in right now called In My Feelings and What to do about it. If uh, you're just now joining us for the series, what this whole thing is all about is, is looking at the, like the check engine light on your car as the, as the indicator maybe on what's going on inside. So a lot of you know that if you've got that check engine light that, that comes on, the best thing to do in that situation is not do what I do and just put a little black tape over it. The best thing to do isn't to ignore it and hope that it just goes away. The best thing to do when an indicator light comes on in your car is to find somebody who knows about cars to figure out like what's going on on the inside before it causes all kinds of other problems far bigger problems down the road if we don't handle it. Now, our emotions, our feelings, like what's going on inside is a lot like that check indicator or that check engine indicator light saying, hey, listen, something needs attention here. Something's going on. Address it now. And so throughout this series, we're looking at different feelings, anger, spiritual depression last week, and now envy this week and saying, pay attention to this. Otherwise, it could steal your joy and even rob your life. Now, I want to say, listen, up front, like nobody is exempt from this. Not anybody who's following Jesus and not me, pastors, even heroes of the faith. So I heard this story a uh, long time ago now. It's like mid-1900s. Uh, two just tremendous heroes of Christian writing. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, and also C.S. Lewis, who wrote like everything else. No, like uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lion of the Witch and Wardrobe, so many other works. Well, these two guys in the 1940s, they were friends. In England, they'd sit down, they'd have tea together because England, right? And they were just, they would talk. Uh, in fact, J.R.R. Tolkien is the one who was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to the faith in the first place, introducing Lewis to Jesus. And these two guys would sit around up late at night, drinking their tea, talking and dreaming about the kinds of work, the kinds of stories that they were going to tell, the kind of books that they were going to write. Except for, for, uh, for C.S. Lewis, it happened almost immediately. He started writing works of uh, theology, works of stories, and they sold. And he became very well-known, very popular, even in his day. And But then what it did to Tolkien on the other side, because while he watched C.S. Lewis, got a career and, and writing and storytelling just blossom. And as he was known and, and wildly popular for these works, Tolkien over here, the guy who introduced him to Jesus, was stuck on like the first couple of chapters. He'd obsess over them. And he would just write them over and over and over and over, believing that he never could quite get it right. And what Proverbs 14 says about envy, it rots the bone and it rotted Tolkien out from the inside out. Listen to me, church, nobody is exempt from envy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see as that indicator light comes on, what to do about it. So we're going to go to the, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and your chair was only used once every weekend. So that's uh, probably pretty safe. Otherwise, uh, on your phone. And uh, if you want to follow along at home on your app as well, that's pretty awesome too. So Numbers chapter 11, some context before we jump into it though. We have to understand that the people of God are like a year, maybe 13 months removed from slavery. 13 months ago, they were in Egypt as slaves, building and baking bricks on repeat. That's all they did. Their lives were not their own. They were not in control. 13 months removed from that time, they're now in the wilderness. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from, other than to say that God provided every day in this form of like manna. 
that they didn't know what it was. In fact, that's literally what manna translates to in their language. In Hebrew, it means like, what is it? I don't know. But like, apparently you can eat it. You can squish it together. You can make it into a little cake. You can make it into a sandwich. You can make it into oatmeal. That's about it, right? You get all the recipes for it. And that's what nourished them day in and day out is this, this cracker dust substance called manna. And the, the envy as they, as they think about it, creep up. Let's listen to what it says. Numbers chapter 11, verse one. Now the people of the Lord complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. God heard them. Uh, then to verse four, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if we only had meat to eat, we, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Trust me, the cost was built in. Uh, at, at Egypt, uh, at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything we never see anything but this manna. And then in verse, verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family just wailing, complaining at the entrance to their tents. When they think about where they were and they think about where they are and the gap between that, they start to get like envious over like over their past life as a slave in Egypt. And this is like, this is the raw destructive power that envy has in our lives. And like I said before, none of us, nobody is exempt from it. Uh, what is envy? Let's just try to keep some of our thoughts a little bit organized here. We think about um, envy and somebody once said, envy is wanting something you don't have. Well, church, there's lots of things that we don't have that we want. There's lots of things that we want we don't have that's not envy. Uh, we, we, we want peace. We want kindness. We want understanding. We want to be understood. We want patience. And we don't have it. I don't have it. That's not envy. No, envy is more nuanced than that. Envy is wanting something that you don't have and then putting this little spin on it and believing that somehow God is at fault. And somehow like God is maybe, maybe holding out on us that God owes me more than what he's getting at. See, envy, uh, remember, spiritual depression, we said, it begins in a discouragement and none of us are exempt from that either. Envy, though, begins in discontentment. That's where it begins, my friends. That is not where it ends. Where it ends is somewhere along the line of resentment blossoming into hatred over the, the, toward the person who has the thing or the status or the whatever it is that you want for it. What's so toxic about this thing, especially from a, from a Christian sense of this, is that, is that envy... On a Christian side, what we're supposed to do in following Jesus is we're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But what envy does is he inverts those things, is, is switches those things around. So what envy does to us in rotting our bones is that it makes us weep when others are rejoicing because it's not, why not me? Why is God holding out on me? And then even more sick, I think it is, what envy does is it makes us rejoice when others are in a place of weeping. And how anti-gospel is that? The Germans even have a, have a word for it. They call it schadenfreude. And what that word means is a mashup of two other words that just simply means uh, pain and joy. I take joy in seeing the pain and the failure of others. So there's this old uh, this parable 
um, of this fisherman who was out on the end of a long pier out in the ocean somewhere, and he's, he's fishing into the water, and he's got a, a shallow bucket of crabs that he's using as bait beside him. And this guy walks up, and he sees the, the, the shallow bucket and all the cra- crabs crawling around. He's like, they're going to get out. They can get out. It's not that deep, and there's a lid right next to it. And the fisherman says, yes, if there was just one crab in the bucket, he could very much get out. But this is how crabs work. Every time one latches up to the side, all the other crabs reach down and pull him back in. The lid is only for the last crab in the bucket to make sure it doesn't get out. In a real and traumatic way, that's where we are. We said envy as an equal opportunity employer rots all of our bones. And that's how it does it. Envy as the thief of joy. When we start playing the comparison game, we find out it's a comparison trap and nobody wins. And so this is what I'm asking from you. For those of you who are at home, those of you who are here, I'm going to list out three different kinds of comparison traps that we fall into. And I'm not going to ask you to like write them down. I'm not going to ask you to like come forward, put them in a bucket so I can look at them later. No, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I just would encourage you in a moment of honesty, just between you and God and say like, which one of these would I fall into? Where is my go-to comparison trap? I know all of these kinds of comparisons are toxic, but this week, especially I am going to be out for this one because I think it's my go-to. And so without further ado, uh, I want to introduce you to the first comparison trap, and that's material comparison. Uh, material comparison is the, is the straightforward, simple kind of comparison. Material comparison is, is just wanting the thing that somebody else has, wanting the truck that somebody else has, wanting, seeing the picture online of the ooey-gooey triple chocolate brownie. But it's not the brownie. It's not about the brownie. Seeing the picture, it's not, about the, it's not about the food. It's about the countertop that the brownie is on. It's about the tile backsplash the brownie is in front of. It's, a, it's about those little perfect cabinets with the perfect little, little knobs that p- pull out. It's about the perfect little, little inspirational quote on the perfect little chalkboard in the background of this whole perfect little kitchen. Why not me? And seeing the picture of the brownies, you're like, I don't even care. I hate those brownies. I don't want anything to do with that. I can't stand you either, right? The resentment that builds up, that's a material comparison. That's the first one. Uh, second one after that, relational comparison. A relational comparison could just, uh, it's, it's like wanting the status of, uh, of someone else or wanting to be known as a person of success along with these people want to be in that certain group depending on your, your age and, uh, and grade level. This could just be wanting to be more popular and have other people people think of you as popular. And so when the, when the picture gets posted, it's, it's like you want to be in it. You want to be in it, not just to be at the party and to be with those people, but you want other people to know that you are with those people and you are at that party. I talked to, I talked to one person uh, it was a true story about this. And they said, like, I, I got to be in the picture. Like I got to go to a thing and I got to hang out with the people, right? I was in, I made it. I was in the picture that got posted, except for not like all of me, like just my shoulder. They said, um, they cropped me out of the picture 
And like the irony was not lost on them in talking about like envy and like jealousy and what it does to like rot our bones and like, and like how this comparison thing and wanting other people to see you in a certain way is probably not healthy. And it's like, yeah, but I don't care. If my shoulder is going to be the picture, I wish all of me was going to be in the picture. Sometimes it's a relational comparison trap that comes with the, why her and not me? Why him and not me? Am I not attractive enough? Am I not successful enough? Am I not likable enough to have a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? Why not me? Material comparison, a relational comparison, and the last one, a circumstantial comparison. It's just looking at somebody else's life circumstances. Man, I wish that I had a job that was as meaningful as his or her job. Why not me? Why are you holding out on me? Why can their family go and, and do those fun things and I have to care for mom and dad? Or my family isn't in that stage yet. Or because of caring for somebody else, I can't go out and I can't, I can't do those things. Why? Why not me? So church, I asked you, like, which one of these material, relational, circumstantial, which one of these comparison traps are you specifically likely to fall into? I, I, I want to lead the way on that. And I want to say, listen, it's not right. It's not okay. But that last one, that circumstantial, that's me. That's my go-to. And, it, and, it, and it's gross. And I know that. But like what it seems like to me is that everybody in West Michigan has a cottage up north. Right? Up north must just be crowded because it's people who live up north. And then it's everybody who like presumably south to like Antarctica and up also have a cottage up north that they go to on the weekends. And so, like, I see that all the time. And I'm like, man, so I sit down with my wife and I'm like, we need to get a cottage up north and be like everybody else, right? Everybody has air. We have air. They have a cottage up north. We need a cottage up north. And she goes, when are you going to, when are you going to, like, go to a cottage up north? You, you're, like, working every weekend and you haven't quite figured out how to get couples to choose, like, a Wednesday noon for their wedding day. Uh, so, like, you're also doing that on the weekends. Wait, when are you going to go to a cottage? And I'm like, fine, okay, so if I can't like, go to the cottage, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do the work of Jesus and the church while you guys serve, you know, the other team. I didn't say, I said it's envious. I didn't say it was rational. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense on it. But like, that's like the thing right, that I fall into. What's yours? I know you've got them. We all have them. Material, relational, um, circumstantial, comparison. It's a comparison game. It starts that way, and then it ends up being a, a comparison uh, trap. I said uh, comparison is the thief of joy, and it could even take your life. I'm going to share with you these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. It says, all toil and achievement springs from envy, and this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The, the way that the author of Ecclesiastes um, describes Envy and the results of it, it's like you can run after wind. It will give you something to do. It'll give you something to chase for your whole life. And you'll never quite catch on to it. You'll never quite hold it. It's just in the end, it's meaningless. And listen, this is the danger. This is how it robs your life. If you spend long enough in pursuit of meaningless things, your life will become meaningless. Don't give your life away that easy. If you're wondering to yourself, has it always been this hard? 
Is it just me? Or is it harder not to play the comparison game trap now more difficult than it ever has been? And sociologists have dug into this in a study uh, repeated on two different university campuses. And the sociologists have found a simple reason why it seems harder. <laughs> and that elegant reason is that it is. So what they did is they got students into a room and they would just um, put them in different groups to kind of control for the, for the differences. And one group, they just kind of let hang out by themselves for a little while. Other group, they had a fake social media feed that everybody knew was fake, but it's just like your assignment for the next 30 minutes is just to flip through and watch your peers, kind of people in your stage, age, range of life, things like that, just watch them do things. And they gave them a happiness survey afterwards. And the words that they used to describe the people who were exposed to the made-up feed was depressed. Significantly depressed. It will take your life from you. So what do we do about it? Let's roll it back. Let's roll it back to um, Numbers again. Uh, numbers uh, verse 6. Listen to what they said. They said, uh, but now we have lost our appetite and we never see anything but this manna. Uh, it, it, something's lost in the translation when they say lost, the, we lost our appetite. Um, specifically, it's a word, yes, it's a euphemism that means that they lost their appetite. They kind of became sick to their stomach. But it's like this Hebrew word, this expression that it's like they dried up their bones. We dried up our bones or it, or it dried up our soul. It's the same word, bones and soul within there. And so it's like this play on words that say, yes, they lost their appetite from the manna, but that stale kind of cracker dust and also that parched their mouth and also down deep into their soul. That's what envy does. This is how it starts. Envy, first of all, envy forgets the God's past goodness. Listen to what they said in Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their, about their hardships. Hearing of the Lord, they complained about their hardships. One commentator said, this uh, statement is rich with audacity, which I just love. They are 13 months out of being slaves in Egypt. And now because they have to eat something undesirable, they're saying, I, I just, I'm complaining about my hardships. It's like, really? Life is hard right now. Do you remember what it was like 13 months ago? But that's just how envy works. Envy makes you forget about past, God's past goodness. And so you have nothing to like hang on to in the future. And also envy overlooks God's present provision. Envy says that if all I have is what God gives me, it won't be enough. There's a story of God in the Bible. It starts up Genesis 1, 2, 3. And God creates. It's good. It's good. It's so very good. And Adam and Eve are in the garden and there's fruit trees and vegetable gardens. And it's just, it's so exquisitely perfect. And God says, the one simple thing I'm asking from you is to stay away from this one tree in the center of the garden. And it's almost like that, that, that envy creeps in and they say, yeah, it's probably the best one. He's holding out on me. We should try it. Author, Pastor Timothy Keller writes that this is what envy does. Envy will make you think something's wrong, even in paradise. Do you know critical people? They just find fault with everything. 
Are you a critical person? Have people told you that before? Does it feel maybe sometimes like there's something rotting away at your bones making you critical? Is it that envy? The envy that overlooks God's present provision in your life, even with paradise, can't see it. Envy overlooks God's present provision. Envy ignores God's future promises. See, the the thing is in the story, they're 13 months-ish into this journey. The wilderness is not their final destination. The wilderness is a chapter in a good story. I mean, church, that's what's so hard for us. I mean, just uh, what we're in right now, global kind of pandemic in the throes of. This is not the end of the story. Envy will ignore, will make us ignore God's future promises. He has something for us. Sometimes in our Christian faith, in our walk, trying to love our neighbors well, it will require a sacrifice. It will require us to miss out on something. But it is only temporary in nature. And paradise awaits the land flowing with milk and honey, or in today's language, uh, cheesecakes and blooming onions. I, I don't know, like good stuff. Like he has paradise awaiting. So remember that story I, I, I opened with? Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Lewis is publishing work after work, story after story, and it's rotting out the bones of Tolkien as he just writes the same few chapters of one story, his first story, over and over and over. He can get nothing out, and it's destroying him seeing the success of his friend and mentee, Lewis. It's robbing out his bones. It's robbing him not only of joy, but also his life. He goes to sleep one night in the midst of his writer's block, and he dreams as this compelling, stark, vivid dream. He wakes up and immediately jots the entire thing down, beginning to end. He publishes it as one of his first published works. Uh, The short story is called Leaf by Nigel. And in the story, Nigel is a character who is hired by the townspeople as an artist to, to create this mural for the town. And he's elated at the opportunity as an artist, this commissioned grand work, huge undertaking. And so he immediately sets to work on his vision and getting it out in the mural form. And he starts writing and he starts drawing, he's painting, and he details and outlines just one single leaf. That's how it starts. But Nigel, he, as an artist, he couldn't quite get the leaf right. And so he starts over and he paints it again. And then he he brushes that away over it, and then he starts over again. And and day after day, he's working on this leaf. Month after month, he's working on this leaf. My friends, decades go by, and, and, and Nigel is still obsessing over a single leaf. He hasn't ever finished the mural by the time in his sleep, Nigel passes away. And Nigel gets in the afterlife now. He gets on a train and he's heading through on into paradise. And he can't help but look out the window and see his leaf. 
but the leaf is attached to a tree, completed in a forest. The entire mural is there out before him. He never got to see it. But God in paradise had finished it all for him after time. Tolkien wakes up, he writes, publishes this story and says, all of us only get a taste. We only get to taste a little bit of this world to come. And if all you have in this world is just a crumb, is just a leaf, look up to heaven as the one God who completes those works and runs away with it and accomplished more with our leaf than we ever thought possible. It was that story, Leaf by Nigel, that Tolkien credits with helping him break through his writer's block and finishing those first early chapters which turned into a completion of a book, which turned into a completion of his series, The Lord of the Rings, which had just a small cultural impact almost 100 years later. Hundreds of years after the story of Numbers, when the people of God were still struggling with what it means to to battle away envy and to find contentment, there was Apostle Paul, a Jesus follower, who wrote about it. And you may have seen some of his work. It's a well-known passage. You may have seen his his verse, one of the most well-known in the Bible, on the back of of an athletic jersey or a practice t-shirt or something. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But what we talk about a little less is not more than two verses earlier, Paul actually gives the context of that. You want to do all things through Christ who gives you strength? Two verses earlier, it says, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret to being content. I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances, in plenty or in want, in much or little. I know the secret. And when he wrote those things, when he's talking about the secret of contentment, he's not sitting back on a beach with a hollowed out pineapple, drinking some fruity drink with a little umbrella out of the top of it. Not at all. When he writes those words, he's under house arrest. He's being guarded by a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. He's in chains. He's dictating these words to somebody else who's writing it down to share it with the church and to share it with all of us thousands of years later. He's learned the secret to being content when he had nothing but chains around his wrist. And he says, this is the secret. The world is going to tell you that the secret of contentment is being happy with the little crumbs that you have. No, that's not the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment isn't being happy with what little you have. It's realizing how very much you have in Jesus Christ, that in him, our faith turned over to him. He promises that what he started, he will make good on all through the end. He promises to finish and complete the leaves that we start in our world. He promises to introduce us one day to paradise itself. When you feel this week, and you will, that tug of want, that material tug, that that relational, that circumstantial tug of want, combat it. Say it's chasing the wind. It's meaningless, and I don't want my life to be meaningless. Replace that tongue of want with a simple prayer, Jesus. You are more than enough. May you be to me more than enough.
And so, Jesus, we pray together that you will be more than enough for us. God, when we experience those tugs, those things, that relationship status, those circumstances that are vying for our attention and demanding more of us, may we see them for what they are, chasing after the wind, The comparison game is a comparison trap. God, may it not rob our lives away from us. God, may we see that we are a people, your church, who don't simply have crumbs. We have nothing short of your righteousness, Jesus Christ. May you guide our way this week. May you, our waymaker, be more than enough. Amen.